I'm Corey Aspen. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times? And how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Collins Minds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 53, we read After Virtue by Alastair McIntyre, published in 1981. Alastair McIntyre was born in 1929 in Glasgow, Scotland. He was educated in the Queen Mary University in London and has Master's of Arts degrees from the University of Manchester and the University of Oxford. He began his teaching career in 1951 at Manchester and taught at several British universities, including Oxford, before moving to the United States in 1969. Since arriving here, McIntyre has taught at many schools, including Brandeis, Boston University, Wellesley, Vanderbilt, Notre Dame, Yale, Duke, and Princeton. Although he began his career as a socialist, he left that movement in the 1970s and converted to Roman Catholicism in the 1980s. His 1981 book, After Virtue, which we'll discuss today, is recognized as one of the most important works of moral and political philosophy in the 20th century. Okay, so Alistair McIntyre begins this book, uh, which is a work of philosophy, analytical philosophy, which is not something that I normally read, but this was recommended to us by, by a number of folks. He begins the book in a really interesting way. He offers us a thought experiment. He says, Imagine the natural sciences disappeared. That is, laboratories were burned, scientists were lynched, books were destroyed, and some know-nothing political movement abolished the science teaching in the schools and universities. And then, generations later, some enlightened group of people seek to revive science. And he says, but all they possess are fragments. These are experiments out of context, parts of theories unrelated to other theories, instruments with unknown uses, half chapters from books, single pages from articles. And they take all these fragments and re-embody them in a set of practices which go under the revived names of physics, chemistry, and biology, you know, basically the new science. And nobody realizes that what they're doing is not natural science in any real sense at all. He says, those contexts which would be needed to make sense of what they are doing have been lost, perhaps irretrievably. And he's what the point that he's getting at is he wants to draw an analogy with our contemporary understanding of morality. He says, the hypothesis which I wish to advance is that in the actual world which we inhabit, in which we inhabit the language of morality is in the same state of grave disorder as the language of natural science and the thought experiment that is full of errors and inconsistencies. And he says, what we possess today are the fragments of a conceptual scheme, parts of which now lack those contexts from which their significance were derived. He says, we have very largely, if not entirely, lost our comprehension, both theoretical, practical, morality. So there's no longer a common understanding of what morality is or no standard to appeal to for truth. And just like his, in his thought experiment, when science disappears and then is brought back, morality disappears and then is brought back. Really interesting thought experiment to start the book, I thought. Yeah, I mean, it sort of uh, gets at uh, what we see in a lot of modern discussions of how people, I mean, we, we speak of virtues, but they're 
sort of unconnected with the natural world. And I think that's what he's getting at. Is he, he talks a lot of, he goes, this is, I mean, the history of philosophy is in this book, if you wanted to really get into it. He goes from ancient times up until today, you know, starting with uh, a lot with Aristotle, talking about how the idea of a virtue is that, you know, a man is what he is, and, he, and then there's man as he could be. And that's a universal kind of thing. It's, you know, like what we're made to be is you know, a certain, like, I- idealized human being. And the virtues are those things that bring us closer to that. And But what that is, is determined by, by nature and also by our, our place in the community. And that's that's where I think, the what, where McIntyre talks about how modern, you know, since, since really since the Reformation and the Enlightenment, people have detached any idea of morality from that sort of... Uh, physical temporal grounding which sort of uh, it leaves it unmoored from any true reality and that and then the philosophies that have come to replace it which he calls emotivism assert that uh, he says it in that there are no valid rational justifications for any claims that objective and impersonal moral standards exist and hence that there are no such standards so this is sort of a look at uh, I, I think what we often talk of as relativism in, in moral discussions today and uh, a lot like um, way back in the first season we, we read uh, Richard Weaver's book that's sort of got at the same questions he takes a, a different kind of look at how we got there and, and what the problem is with that unattached nature to, uh, to modern morality yeah so a lot of like a lot of our authors he's really trying to reclaim kind of a, a lost truth, lost morality, and definitely brings us to the point where we are now, which is this moral relativism that's that's so pervasive and rampant. And so he describes to us how kind of how we got here. I mean he's going to he's going to preference the classical views of morality. It's in in some sense, again, this is a this is another author even though this was published by notre dame and i I think that he's a catholic author but Mm -hmm. there's there's really not a lot of god in the book well put it that way it's it's kind of like trying to reclaim um lost morality without without any appeal to god which which is you know typical of what what we've read Uh, but he so he he takes us back to kind of the changes under the enlightenment where you know the enlightenment project was this focus on mastering the universe and mastering the elements and uh, stepping out from underneath the shadow of God and saying like, you know, as human beings, we have the power through logical analysis and argument, rationality to construct a world and master the elements and that sort of thing. And when it came to morality, it was sort of the same kind of approach that we can do morality ourselves, you know, we we can find the core premises, the kind of the nature of morality as it is in itself, and so the Enlightenment Project is sort of constructing arguments which will move from premises about human nature, for example, stuff that we've talked about before, to conclusions about the authority of moral rules um, and precepts. But McIntyre is going to argue that 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 whole concept was bound to fail because the conception of human nature they were based on and moral precepts 
they have a history and they were limited by historical understanding. He spends a lot of time talking about that, which I think if we were philosophers really into that, we would talk uh, more in depth. But I think for, the, for this podcast, it's just interesting to note that he thinks that basically you, you can't drill down to moral foundations or first principles because people will just have different first principles. And so they, they start their argument based on different premises. And it uses a good example of, for example, an immoral disagreement like abortion, for example. He says, there seems to be no rational way of securing moral agreement in our culture. No rational way of weighing the claims of one against another. For each premise employs some quite different normative concept from the others, so that the claims made upon us are of quite different kinds. And because there is in our society no established way of deciding between these claims, you know, that oral argument appears to be necessarily interminable. In other words, uh, he uses uh, abortion as an example. You start from, from two different premises. On the one hand, the primacy of the mother. On the other hand, the, you know, the primacy of the, the new human life. And you can build arguments upon either one of those that are coherent and rationally sound and come to completely different conclusions and then debate it. But you're debating based on completely different foundations and premises. And so therefore you make no progress at all. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. Also, he compared the same departure from Aristotelian morality uh, in the enlightenment to also sort of the opposite, but same effect that happened through the Protestant reformation where they're also getting away from the sort of nature based virtue. The idea that somebody's, purpose is defined by his his station and his physical nature and you know the the ultimate the telos uh of all human beings and instead you know when you get in, when the reformation begins and, and the theologians of, of that of protestantism begin to talk about you know salvation by by scripture alone you know i mean i mean justification by scripture alone you're sort of separating yourself also again from the history and the uh the general understanding and all of the reason that's come that's behind what we call virtues the only ones you're keeping are ones that are specifically ordained in the bible which mm. you know a lot there's a lot of overlap and he talks about how aristotle and and the new testament can coexist and do overlap and that's and you know medieval catholics kind of put this all together and you know, and, and made a, a synthesis of it that actually worked pretty well. But here, you know, by the Reformation, the Protestant reformers were saying that, you know, you can use reason to discover truth, but not the right thing to do. And that's at odds with the, with the earlier theology that says, you know, man's reason can be used to discover what God wants us to do. And that's why part of why we have reason is that we can discover our true nature through it, you know, as well as through revelations uh, in scriptures. So that, that to me was interesting because usually you don't see the Reformation and the Enlightenment. I mean, they, he has them both going the opposite way, but they're both abandoning the same thing. And they're both kind of leaving behind a lot of the, how we got there of mm -hmm. uh, medieval morality. And so in our present position, he says, philosophical analysis will not help us. It's powerless to detect the disorders of moral thought. He says, the catastrophe will have been of such a kind that it has not 
was not and has not been recognized as a catastrophe. So up to this point, we haven't recognized that we actually lost the core truth um, at some point. Our academic history, he says, is less than two centuries old. Suppose the catastrophe occurred before the founding of academic history so that the moral and other evaluative presuppositions of academic history derive from the forms of the disorder which brought it about. So we don't, we don't have the tools because the tools were created to answer the wrong questions, in other words. And so we base all of our thought tools on half pages, the half chapters, the single pages of, of articles that remain and try to build around from that. You know, what really struck me about this, and I, and I wish I, he would have developed it further. I thought he was going to, but he didn't. But what, what really struck me is there's a, I mean, I think there's a, a religious argument for this too. I mean, um, Mormonism, for example, is, is kind of founded on the, on, the, on the idea that religious truth was lost and needed to be restored. You know, so this thought experiment of his, actually, I think, does have some religious tradition to it. And it would have been interesting for him to kind of dive into that and evaluate that to tell us whether that would work or not. I, mean, I assume he said he would say that it doesn't, but it would have been interesting to see his, his thinking along those lines because his, his thought experiment is, is really thought provoking, but it actually is not super novel, uh, at least mm-hmm. not, not in my experience, but I guess what's novel is his focus instead on rather than restoring truth. He doesn't, he seems to come down pretty hard on the, on the idea that you can't actually restore truth. Instead, what you can do is just return to a mode of living that is more conducive to, you know, how, how humans really are and how we actually interact with one another. I don't know. What do you think? Do you have any thoughts about that? That's, that's an interesting point. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't really understand that about Mormonism, but it's a good parallel. And yeah, I would have liked to have read that too. I, I think a lot of what he is describing is kind of how the Renaissance happened too. Like we didn't lose everything, yeah. but what was being reborn was in bits and pieces. And I think um, as early Renaissance people were getting access again to some of the ancient knowledge, it was it wasn't like today, you know. I mean, where we have it all. I mean, we have all we're going to get for the most part. I mean, some of it is lost, but. You know, they were getting this, this manuscript was discovered. Oh, okay. But it's out of context. You know, it's, it's confusing. So I, I can imagine that, you know, in the 1600s, as people were finally kind of really getting back into those ancient discussions of philosophy, that it was really confusing because they were, you know, they were coming up with things that was like opening a book to a random page and trying yeah. to make sense of it the whole thought experiment is interesting and it's, you know, this is, this kind of dovetails with a lot of, I mean, what part of what makes this, I think a conservative book is that emphasis on where things come from and, and it's the historical nature of seeking virtue and, and in the historical nature of man's purpose is, is a lot along the lines of like Burke's, you know, arguments about tradition things. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you just took, if you just looked at, you know, the U S code, now without understanding why it was written and how we got there you know without any of our history or court rulings or anything there'd be some things that wouldn't make sense to you there's Mm -hmm. there there are still some things even if you know it don't make sense to you but i think that tradition is part of it and is always in anglo-american law has always been 
part of what undergirds our thinking about how to live it's important and that this that that puts it at odds with some of the more utopian ideas that came out of like the french revolution and french enlightenment of just the clean slate stuff he he builds on this idea in in a later chapter where he talks about uh taboo Mm. so what is taboo it's it's kind of like unwritten rules of you know human interaction so he talks about he uses the example of in polynesian culture there's quite a few taboos apparently and one in particular he he concentrates on is that uh, men and women at some at one point couldn't eat together and he says taboo rules often have a history which confers intelligibility beyond upon them deprive the taboo rules of their original context and they appear as a set of arbitrary prohibitions so when this one particular archaeologist was asking the women, well, why can't you eat food with men? And the answer was, well, because it's forbidden. And, and so the follow-up is, well, why is it forbidden? Yeah. <laughs> and they couldn't remember. They didn't know. And if you, because it, it just had a, it had a historical context that it, over the years, over the generations, had just been lost. He says, in such a situation, the rules have been deprived of any status that can secure their authority. And if they do not acquire some new status quickly, both their interpretation and their justification become debatable. He says there's no way to understand the character of taboo rules except as a survival from some previous cultural background within archaeological history. So you can't really understand it through logical proofs, for example. You know, you can't, like Aquinas, like come up with elaborate, you know, ingenious logical proofs to prove that men and women are not supposed to eat together. You know, mm. it's just, it's not going to be available. There was some reason at some point, and maybe it was a good one. We'll assume that it probably was. But at this point, it's just lost to history. I thought that was a good way to kind of describe, not just, to, well, to build on the thought experiment, kind of say, some of the rules, I mean, and I, I really thought of religion a lot in this, mm. right? because there's there's so many practices. There, there's so much of the practice related to religion that is kind of taboo type stuff like why exactly do you not eat pork uh, well, yeah i thought a lot of, of old testament rules too when i was reading that it's you know some of them make sense and you can you can extrapolate oh this is what a culture needs to survive this is something that you know we, yeah you can't you know you know a lot of the ten commandments stuff yeah you can't go around killing people well sure you know most societies have something like that yeah but then the one about like you can't wear a garment made of mixed cloths like wait what why you know like the, yeah. and, but it's in there and god said so so if you're an observant jew that's still part of the rules um mm-hmm. you know so that is I, I i sort of a modern example i think has been the debate over same-sex marriage and it's like if you pretend not to know the history of how families are formed and how babies are made the male female pairing could seem arbitrary to you i mean mm-hmm. we all know this history we all know where human beings come from and it requires a man and a woman. But, you know, if you wanted to pretend in a sort of utopian way, as, as people do, that there's no difference and that, you know, because of advancements in uh, IVF or adoption or things, we can get past the biological nature of ourselves and of, of, of our families, then it'd be easy to justify, well, yeah, well, there's, any marriage can just be any number of people of any sex who, mm-hmm. uh, 
get together in a romantic relationship. But like the taboo rules, it, it forgets why this institution was set up and what it originally did and whether or not that still has meaning today. And I, th- I would argue it does. It, you know, it, by freeing oneself from the burden of tradition, you're free to make all sorts of uh, crazy rules. And you know, some of them might not be that harmful, but some of them might. And, you know, by, you know, the, the, in the Polynesian example, they're actually forgotten the reason, but, you know, now we sort of sometimes pretend to forget reasons because the reasons are certainly written down now in our, our literate culture, but we can, you know, if, if you want something and that desire is unmoored from the natural world, you can, you know, you can fudge it. And that maybe that's, that's part of what he was talking about, about emotivism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, nothing's attached to anything logically. So you could, uh, by by turning a blind eye to those thousands of years of why we made such rules, you can, yeah, you can go your own way if you want to. And there's a real risk, I think, of throwing a baby out with the bathwater in this mm-hmm. sense that if you have some rules that have, we've lost the context for them, you know, for example, I'd say, you know, in Mormonism, there's a there's a prohibition against drinking tea. And I was always, you know, what's the problem with tea exactly? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of post hoc, ra- you know, reasons for rationalizations for why, well, because it has caffeine in it or something, or, you know, like, oh, because this, that, and, and none of them are, you know, really actually founded in any, any knowledge, you know, of, of what the historical context was. It, but, but then you take rules like that and you're like, well, if that one is arbitrary, then all of them are arbitrary, right? I mean, if, yeah, you can take it too far. Yeah. And I think that's, that's kind of where, you know, one of the reasons we're in this, uh, this position of relativism now is, is, and I think that one of the reasons that McIntyre is making this argument is he, he, he sees that, that contemporary morality really is susceptible to that a lot. You know, very often it does come down to just tradition, you know, taboo, style you know we started it for at some point for some reason and it was probably a good one and now either we've forgotten or those rationale those rationales have sort of fallen by the wayside and and maybe i think i I took the impression i wonder if you did that one of the reasons that he wants to look back to virtue wants to look back to the classics is to say rather than getting wrapped around the axle of logical proofs and rules uh, and and specific reasons. What he's going to argue is that the virtues are able to attach to humans mostly be through the through the context of kind of the shared experience of the community. So it's kind of like excellence. You know what it means to be an excellent uh, athlete or or courageous. The, those standards are created by the community itself. And so you don't actually have to rely upon some original reason or original rule because it's, in some sense, it's continuous. You know, in some sense, it's kind of a living standard that could evolve over time, but it's actually created by the community. What, what he's going to argue and what, you know, Nietzsche argued too is, you know, that's where morality comes from in the first place is it really just comes from human beings as they interact together. And so I think that a part of what McIntyre is arguing is let's just kind of own that. And instead of worrying about the origins and the first principle and building on 
on supposed foundations that he doesn't necessarily think exist. Let's just own the fact that our morality sort of comes from each other and focus on sort of building it from there. Yeah, I, th I thought that was an interesting case. I mean, we've read a, a bunch of things that talk about how people feel unhappy at being attached, detached from a community. And that's, you know, we've read a bunch of books that talk about since the Industrial Revolution, as people moved around more and they're working outside the home. And it, it's all sort of stirring us up in a way we don't know how to settle down uh, because it's disrupting what had been the only way people lived forever. Now here he's kind of taking that and applying it to, to virtue itself. And, this, you know, he talks about how in the Homeric tradition and the Aristotelian tradition, your virtue, it's not only that it depended on your place in society and was dictated by your place in society, but they couldn't even imagine how to be virtuous outside of a society. Mm -hmm. You know, where I think today we are, I wasn't really even conscious of how individualistic our morality is today. But when he said that, it's, you know, could a person go off by himself and live a moral life like a hermit? And I, th I think in a modern society would say yes. But I don't know that that, the, I don't know if that fits with the ancient conception of virtues because it, what you're doing off by yourself isn't really doing anything to the community, good or bad. I mean, mm -hmm. it could be even be bad because you're removing yourself from it and, and your, your talents are, are leaving. It, it could be good if you're just really awful and nobody wants you around anyway. But it, it's, not, it's not interacting with the community and fulfilling any role or any, any purpose or any you know, uh, idealized state of your humanity because those things are all determined by where you're from and, and what you do. And I know, I've been thinking about that as we, um, my local paper has been having a lot of, uh, have a, a section of obituaries every day for people who have died from the coronavirus. And the subheads in these are always sort of like, you know, mother, teacher, you know, grandfather. Yeah. And that's all, uh, that is still, even in this individualist age, often how we define ourselves. And the little obituary will often have, you know, individual facts about the person. You know, he was hardworking, he was funny, he was, you know, whatever. But our roles are how we, we how other people see us and how we see ourselves. And I think that's, that still comes through in that sort of setting. It's like, well, who was this person? What did he, what did he do? You know, like, what, who was he to others? And I think that that's the ancient thing that's still around um but has definitely faded to an extent that we don't fully recognize it as the only way in the way that uh, i think uh, the ancient greeks did mm -hmm. yeah, and it really does feel like there's something lost there mm -hmm. but i guess what he would what folks on the other side would argue is that we need it particularly on the left too but but really across the spectrum would argue that well we needed to throw off the the chains of what the community thought because what the community thought community morality is what brought us slavery and uh, lack of women's rights and that sort of thing mm -hmm. it's really individualism and the uh, privileging the uh, the autonomy of the individual that brought us to where we are today as far as people have have an ability to pursue their own lives at a much greater extent those who been oppressed in the past versus today. And I think this, this comes back to the conversation that we've had so, so many times, which is like, yeah, all well, that was good. So how do we keep, keep, keep what else was good from before while also 
you know, it's it goes back to the to your framing, which is do this, but not too much. You know, let's mm-hmm. let's keep the community, let's keep the community standards, and while at the same time still allowing some progress as far as the, the individual and, and those people who are oppressed. So I don't know, it's tough. On, on the one hand, I, I obviously I'm conservative, and so I fall probably more heavily on the side of of tradition and trying to maintain order but back to mcintyre's argument that's just my own preference so and as nietzsche would say that's my own will to power and on the other side we have their will to power which is you know wokeness and and pushing the boundaries and open borders and stuff that we would find insane but you know may become the norm in 50 years you know the always the lesson of conservatism is balancing. I think. I think that more than anything is what has been a revelation to me since we started this podcast. Is that there is no uh, there's no conservative utopia. Yeah. There's, there's no bright line, black or white, you know, system of rules that will govern everything for a conservative. There's, I mean, even. Even the philosophers here, who are usually good on the bright line rules, I mean, he's talking about a lot. You know, there's a lot of there's ways to approach virtue, and there, but there's there's vagueness, and there has to be. It's a challenge. It, it's it's easier just to just like it's easier to get into a conspiracy theory sometimes rather than admit that the world is chaotic and nobody's really in charge. It's easy to get into a utopian philosophy and say this is all my answers. You know, yeah, this is it, or you know, and to say in the in the modern emotivism sense that yeah it doesn't you know there's no good there's just what i want the, the nietzschean thing you know and that's what a lot of modern philosophers were saying he talked about the, the uh bloomsbury said in the about 100 years ago who really developed this argument in england and yeah it's, i mean if if you can't figure out what virtue is it's easier to say there's no virtue than to search for it you know yeah. you know it's just like if you if you don't see evidence of god it's easy to say well there must be none but sometimes looking for them, you, you might find them. And, you know, maybe you won't. I mean, not everybody has a personal revelation that makes it easy. But it's, that's the thing, it, you know, living correctly is not easy. And that's just the way it is, I think. It's really instructive, though, of our predicament, because so many of the arguments of today just seem like people just talking past each other completely. Mm. And, you know, abortion is one. I, I think another good one right now is the the quarantine you know yeah it's it's rapidly becoming a political issue whether you should whether we should reopen america or whether we should stay locked in and i just feel like this is such an interesting microcosm of kind of two philosophies of the world that are moral disagreements but really have no way of of securing like the true answer because on the one hand you have folks who are saying yeah the quarantine worked and that's why we haven't had as many as many cases and as many deaths and we need to keep it that way until we're at a more moderating point and and on the other side you got folks saying this is crazy this is madness we can't stay locked in forever and people are losing their jobs and their livelihoods and the next step is to have well i'm, I'm reading this more and more often like people 
even some libertarians saying well, what we need is a universal basic income and i'm kind of like mm. uh, what we need is to start working again and I, yeah but anyway but you but you, you start from two very different premises to say like we need to save every single soul i, I saw this uh on twitter i mean which always is a dangerous place to read because there's a lot of brain dead stuff but this one really jumped out at me this guy said where are all the pro-life supporters now because they're so they're so worried about maintaining or, or they're, they're so worried about preserving human life but they don't care about grandma now and i just thought that was a perfect example of talking completely past each other and yeah when you argue you're not really changing anyone's mind because it's just it's just basically like barking at the moon it goes back to the emotivism of like whatever i feel what i feel is the morality and so you need to agree with that too even though other people just feel differently yeah yeah like an argument should be an attempt for <clears throat> on both sides for people to get to the truth but if one side and sometimes both sides don't agree that there is a common truth what are we doing we're just like a cable news show where we yell at each other you know and, and then that's and, and then we go home and nobody's everybody's a little bit madder but nobody's had his mind changed well, what good is that you know and yeah the search for truth is difficult but i th i think we have to yeah, I mean, the example you brought up, too, is sort of a, the idea that there's no trade-offs. I think that's deeply rooted in this idea that what I want is what is true, and what I want is what things should be based on. And, yeah, like the idea that we should just pay everyone to stay home forever, you know, until the perfect vaccine is found that, that you know, immunizes everybody against it. Well, that's never going to happen. I mean, it's gonna, there, there will be a vaccine that will help a lot. But to stay in forever, and that was never the goal of all this, you know. I mean, it was, the goal was to to lessen the effects, to not have, you know, yeah. off the charts, you know, uh, hyperbolic rates of infection where hospitals can't keep up. Having done that, you know, it's I hear a lot of the argument that's the sort of thing. But you know, back in the in the early two thousands, there were people on the right who said that you know we have to. We have to, you know, invade this country because it'll save lives over here. Or we have to make this security thing at the yeah. airports that inconveniences everybody and slows everything down and costs money. But if it saves one life, it's worth it. Right. And the left would make fun of us for that. Be like, that's insane. Everything, you know, you know, some of the same examples we're making fun of them for today. Like, well, then just ban cars because so many people die in car accidents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that would save a ton of lives uh, every year. But, you know, you can't do it. You gotta have a society that, that exists in, you know, modern transportation infrastructures, and people want that and are willing to take risks. But yeah, that, that precautionary principle is now now you're hearing it more on the other side, and I I think a lot of that's just because of who's in charge politically, and you know, I wonder how much of it would be switched if it were a different president. But yeah. that's yeah, impossible to say. But I I find it very persuasive what McIntyre is selling here that. There really is no, I mean, because I felt this way for a long time. That there's, there is no, you know, core answer, that core truth that people can, you know, point to and say, there it is. See, I'm right. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, kind of feel like, well, I just got to throw my hands up because in, in different quarters, people have different answers. You know, for for you know, religious believers, they'll say, of course, there's, there's an authority that you can appeal to, and that's God. And, then you know, but then again, like there's as many religions as there are, you know, colors in this in the color wheel mm -hmm. uh, of what what 
God's will actually is. And then, you know, folks on the left would be utilitarianism. We're like, well, what we need is the greatest, greatest good for the greatest number and others. And, and then McIntyre, I feel like falls into his own, uh, into the same ditch that he's identifying, which is to say that he, he's bringing us around to, well, what we need it to do is, is hail back to these Aristotelian values, the virtues. That's what, that's, that's the answer. And I, I wonder what you thought. I mean, it wasn't very persuasive to me. I, I just felt like he was kind of giving us what, what he thought was best. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> that's, of, that's the, pulls out of the ditch. Yeah. And you know, when you get, when you read a book, I guess you want to get to the end and be like, here's the virtues. There's 12 of them, you know? And it, yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> but I think part of his point is that there is no such easy answer. I mean, I, I wish yeah. there were, I mean, I like, he mentions Franklin's list of uh, 13 virtues. And I, you know, I looked that one up. Like, yeah, these are these are all good virtues, but then you see other lists, and you know, like, well, yeah, those are good too. They all cover a lot of some of them. There's overlap. He went through all of the sort of conceptions of virtue from ancient times up until today. He talked about Jane Austen's ideas on virtue, which are interesting to me, but they're all different and they're all, yeah, there's no, he synthesized them pretty well, but there's not a full synthesis there, and I don't think there ever can be people are dealing with different problems in different ages too and so they'll emphasize different natures but yeah we all want the we all want the list you know i remember when i was in the boy scouts and we said the the scout law yeah those were 12 <laughs> points that i still think of as good ways to live you know if yeah, you know, when sure. you're in a moral quandary usually one of them is implicated yeah but it's again it's you know it's a product of its time and a product of you know, when, when scout the scouting movement started in the early 20th century and what people were looking for for virtue in those days. Yeah, I don't know if there's a way I could say to somebody in a different country in a different culture, yeah, these are the, these are the 12, you know, that go with that, you know. But yeah, it's tough, yeah. Uh, and I, I, the answer's unsatisfying, but that's, I guess that's probably because human nature is unsatisfying. And so what makes, I think this what makes this a conservative book is that he actually cares that, that we have all these competing moralities and, and we shouldn't just toss them all because, you know, and, and subject ourselves to, uh, to uh, condemn ourselves to relativism forever. Instead, we should try to find a way, which, which is what he's doing here is what Weaver did in his book. It's what, it's what Leo Strauss did in his book. What they're trying to do is, find a way out, find a way out of the ditch where I think those on the left, the, the, the intellectual left, let's say, maybe not the political left, but the intellectual left is just to say it's all relative. So let's just agree with Nietzsche that this is a will to power. And, and really the only recourse we have is coercion. You know, yeah. we, we can't convince anyone of, of our, of our arguments because they start from different premises. So therefore really what we're, what we're left with is just pure co coercion, which is what that New York Times 1619 project is, right? Is to, to, to try to cram a whole new concept, created, just pulled out of your butt and created and forced down the throats of schools. And I think, you know, she's pretty open about that fact. Like, well, yeah. I'm not worried about whether this is historical. What we're trying to do is basically have thought coercion. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen on the right. Certainly it does. But that's, I think that's what McIntyre and Weaver and Strauss, that's what they're trying to save us from. Yeah, I think, I think he's saying sort of these answers have been imperfect, but they're better than 
not even trying to answer. And that 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 is a divide we see. Yeah, still in our politics for sure. I hadn't thought about it in the sixteen nineteen concept, but that's definitely true. They're trying to just erase all of the morality of the past and say it's just competing actors trying to force other people to do things. Just pure power struggle, the race, the racial power struggle, and, and and other you know economic power struggle. And that's besides being I, I, actually untrue. I mean, I think that most of our founding fathers did try to live, live by a set of enlightenment virtues, whether they did so perfectly or imperfectly is well debatable, but it, even, even beyond the, the incorrectness of the argument, it's just, it's just depressing to look at the world that way. Mm-hmm. So I, I think people do try to appeal to higher ideals most of the time. All right. Those are basically my closing thoughts. Do you have any extra? No, I think that that wraps it up. All right. Good. So that's McIntyre after virtue. Thanks for joining us. Catch us next time.